Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning again. Oh, that's weak, man. Y'all talking like you got heartburn or something. Let's try that again. Good morning. morning. Hey, there you go. That wasn't so bad. You probably got a little bit out of there. Who's got heartburn, by the way? (laughs) Dealing with a little bit of it this morning. Good food this weekend. Everybody ready for Christmas? I heard a mixture of amen and wonderful and no. (laughs) Great. Well, I'm looking forward to just facing the Christmas season with all of you. Uh, We're going to look at a couple of different uh, sections of scripture today as we continue in a series called Different. If you're a guest with us, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. I get the honor and the privilege on most Sundays uh, to be the one that brings God's word. We've been in a series that's asked two questions since the start of October. The first one is, what kind of disciples do we want to make? The word disciple just means a learner. It means someone who sits under someone else. But that could be for any number of reasons. We need to be more specific when we're talking about disciples within the church. And more specifically, followers of Jesus Christ. What do they look like? And we've talked about the hospitability of those people and and how they're different. And they live questionable lives that cause people to ask them about their faith. But for the last three weeks, we've now been asking a different question. What kind of church creates those kinds of disciples? And we've been answering that with four letters, K-D-S-C. K stands for kingdom. And we talked about how disciples of Jesus see everything through the lens, not first and foremost of the church, but of the kingdom of God, his rule and reign over all of creation. Uh, The last time I was with you, we talked about disciple. That's the D, someone who follows him, someone who has the dust of their rabbi all over them. They follow him so closely and and what that looks like. Today, we're going to ask this question, what effect should that have on society. That's the S. So K, kingdom. D, disciple. Today is S, society. And then we're finally going to get to the church. That's the C. They are, uh, get, those terms are there for a reason. They're in that order for a reason. And today we talk about the society piece. Hear and obey the voice of Jesus. What difference does that make in the world? And when I ask that question, I don't just mean what, what effect is it in terms of individual salvation? Of course we want people to know Jesus as we know him. We want to invite people as we do every single week to come and to turn from their sins and to put their faith and their trust in Christ. It's at the center of everything we do, but it's not the circumference of all we do. The church has a larger mandate than that. The totality, in fact, of your call and my call, the call of our church it is more holistic and all-encompassing. My friend Bob Roberts, who's preached here several times this year already, puts it this way. People who are merely focused on the church will ask the question, how's my church? But kingdom disciples will ask, how's my city? How's my neighborhood? How are my neighbors? How's my town? How's my local police department, fire department? How's, my, how's the grid of society functioning as a result of my presence? What does that look like? Because scripture reminds us in the end that Jesus' intention is not only to save individuals, his intention is to redeem the whole cosmos and every part of that cosmos. So those of us who follow him, we got to be passionate about that also. And so that's the question today. What should we envision, not just for ourselves and our church family, how big we are and what kind of programs we've got running, but but for the whole tri-state area, 
Not just how's Covenant Church, but how's the tri-state area? How's our city? And, and there are three movements that have been very helpful in many ways to the church, but in other ways they can be a distraction from this question. And I want to give those to you by way of introduction today. The first is what I'll call the revivalist movement. Now this was a movement that began the, the late 18th century actually and it went on for about 150 years re resulted in a lot of wonderful things lots of people coming to faith in Jesus that's a good thing powerful evangelists the Holy Spirit that just somehow was uniquely upon them to draw the net evangelists still today they're a wonderful gift to the church the, the, probably the latest and the greatest of those would have been Billy Graham who passed away just a, a few years ago it's a wonderful thing to see revival brought to a church. But revivalism sometimes brings with it the temptation to think it's all about salvations, right? It, it's all about people coming to know the Lord. We really shouldn't really concern ourselves with anything else. Then there's something called the church growth movement. Now, just full disclosure here, my master's degree was in church growth. So what it does is it takes sociology, anthropology, and theology and puts them in a blender. All right, that's what it does. He's like, I'm going to take the social sciences and I'm going to leverage them in such a way that I understand how to speak the language of culture, that I understand how to draw the net. Most importantly, that I understand how to fill seats in a church. What am I going to say? How am I going to communicate from what's the, the, what, the camera angles to the lighting to all these other things that, again, are not inherently bad? But what's it going to take to draw a crowd using sociology and anthropology as tools to try to get people into the church to hear the gospel. Again, the intention is good. But that brought with it a temptation to think it's all about the numbers. And the result can sometimes be momentum-dependent churches who think we're not successful unless this week's crowd was larger than last week's crowd. And if you're looking around, you can tell it's Thanksgiving weekend, can't you? Like, it just, it just is. We had to put chairs in the aisle a couple, a couple of weeks ago. You're going to have ebbs and flows, but in a momentum-dependent organization that is geared solely in this sort of church growth mentality, today is a disaster, right? It's, it, it really, it just gets dumb sometimes when you start thinking about how your momentum, this has got to be bigger than the last, this has got to be better than the last one, and, and those who fail at reaching their goals get despondent they feel like failures those who succeed they get very self-absorbed and, and the church growth movement has done two things number one it, it's that focus on numbers but because it's a focus on numbers based in using the social sciences and understanding that people that are kind of like most other people they they like to hang out with people most like them right so I'm a I'm a white middle-class overweight middle-aged guy the people I'm most comfortable around just this is not evil it's just sociology 101 or people who are just like me that's just because there's this instant sort of oh yeah you're <laughs> you're overweight too what are you doing about it oh nothing yeah me too right so you're you're just talking to people and everything's similar but let me tell you what that exacerbated it exacerbated the political polarization that we're experiencing right now in this country and it has exacerbated the race issue in the church it didn't mean to do it. Church growth is not racist. But because of the tools it used, well, you want to get this person, that person. So you want to target this group, that group. And what we've ended up with is a church that's more segregated now than it ever was before that movement ever started. Sometimes the cure can be worse than the disease. So revivalism, it's all about the souls. Church growth, it's all about the numbers. Then there's church health. 
which sought to move beyond the numbers, that's a good thing, to access overall spiritual maturity and the growth of its members. That, too, is a good thing. In fact, you're going to see us emphasize some of that after the first of the year with our emphasis on emotional healthy spirituality. It's not wrong, and I think, honestly, in our day and time right here in our context, we need that, okay? But here's the issue with church health. If the temptation is to stop your assessment with the church and you never quite get to your community, and so that brought with it a temptation to think, depth, right? So revivalism, it's all about salvations. Church growth, it's all about the numbers. Church health, it's all about the depth. But the problem is we're all still looking inward. We have not turned around to look at the people Jesus died to save just yet, right? And here's what these three have unintentionally done to what you typically think about your Monday to Saturday life. They have taught you to think that your week to week, your work day, your, your playing, look, work hard, play hard, rest well, all those kind of things, but that those professions and skills, that's just a way to make money. Really, it's kind of tangential, probably completely separate from the way you need to link up your calling with the calling of others in your church family to make a difference. So this morning, I want to give you another set of lenses to look at society through, and we find that set of lenses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Amen? That's your salvation experience and mine. If you have come to know the Lord, the old you is gone. That's what's symbolized in baptism, right? I'm dead. All of me goes under the water. I am raised to new life. All of me. All right. Well, what's the, what should be the net result of that, though? All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, so here's the things that we learn from this passage. Number one, Jesus is the only true reconciler. Nobody else can reconcile God to man except Jesus. Amen? I get told, people joke with me if they know I'm a pastor and I'll sit in town. I've got a guy that I have breakfast with almost every Tuesday morning at Betty's. We don't even schedule it. We're just sitting at the counter together. It's like two old guys, just like, how you doing? Yeah, how you doing? And I usually get this from him, Reverend. I hate that title, by the way. But he says, Reverend, you saved any souls this week? And I have to remind him, I have never saved a soul in my entire life, including my own. One God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But here's what Paul is saying. That mediator that saved you and saved me, he gave you more than a new nature. He gave you a new calling. He gave you a call to the world and to bring that message of reconciliation to the world. And yes, that includes talking about Jesus, but it also includes modeling that reconciliation in every single part of your life. That includes your jobs, your skills, your passions. And so when we speak of society, that's all we're talking about. We're talking about the grid, and it's going to come up here on the screen in just a moment, the grid off of which the world operates, all right? Every kind of, of, of domain, if you will, of society, economics, right? Because we got to pay for everything that we're going to do in the, the society we're going to develop. Agriculture and water, we have to grow food and do all of that kind of thing. You've got to slaughter the cattle and grow the beans and, you know, that sort of thing. So, social and civil society, we have to have police officers, law and order, a, a body of law so that when we disagree, there's an institution where those things can be mitigated and mediated. Education, because we, we have to raise up the next generation and teach them all of those effective skills, arts and media, but the creatives in our society, science and technology, always inventing new things, governance, medical for when we get sick. 
all of these things, everybody listening to me, you either are working somewhere on that grid, or if you're retired, you worked somewhere on that grid. And your call is not simply to make a living. One of the huge mistakes we've made in the evangelical church in the West is to define a call solely in terms of vocational ministry. Right? It's like what I have is a career, but what my pastor has is a call. Nonsense. Nonsense. What I do has a career element to it, and what you do has a call element to it. Because God created us both. God filled us both with the Holy Spirit, and God calls us both to these things. I, I, my favorite example of this is the, the story of Eric Liddell who ran in the, the Munich Olympic Games and he delayed his missionary assignment. His parents were very disappointed in him in that because he wanted to run in the Olympics and it was his famous saying like, God created me and God called me but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Some of you, when you do the things you do, you feel the pleasure of God. Some of you, you used to. But it's gotten old, and you're Thanksgiving weekend now, you've got a good case of heartburn. You've been reassessing your life for the last four days, and you're not terribly happy with it. You're wondering, where'd the passion go? Where did it go? I'm hoping you'll get it back today, or at some point in the next month or so as God's Word begins to seep down into your heart. But, but did you know there's places you go because of what you do and the part of society that you camp out in, people you rub shoulders with that I can't? There are people that you can reach that I can't. Think about our work on the other side of the ocean. I know it's, it's a little weird sometimes to some of you. It's not a, the traditional way that we've done that kind of work over about the last 200 years. But, but that hasn't primarily happened through ministers for, for one reason. It can't, can it? No, who's been doing that? Doctors, nurses, teachers, people with, with expertise. They're bringing credibility to an area like that, that, that even... It, even if it was possible for me to go and kind of lead the way, I couldn't do that. You should pay a visit to Fox Glen or Apple Tree sometimes, some of these communities where, where we're at work, and, and just look at who has influence. Look at who's been serving those people at a deep level. There are men and women, I won't name them, even though I think I'd be bragging on them. They may perceive that as I'm embarrassing them, but I, I won't call their names. But I'll, I'll tell you, there, there are several of those people that are out there every single week. They're praying with those people. They've shared the gospel with those people. They work with those individuals. And, and, and I'll tell you, I don't know how many of those residents even have a concept of what a church is supposed to be or what a pastor is supposed to do. But if you were to ask them who their pastor is, they would point to one of the probably half dozen individuals that are out there working with them before they would ever point to me. You know why? Some of them don't even know who I am. And I go out there and I visit with the team and I visit with those people and it's an honor and a privilege to pray for them. And that's the ministry that our people are doing and I am happy to back it up, but I'm not the star in that. I don't introduce myself as Pastor Joel out there. How you doing? I'm, I'm Joel. You want one bowl of chili or five? How are you doing today? Right? The, the, the people that are, that are influencing, this is what I'm talking about. Where's God placed you? Where do you see yourself on the grid of society? And once you begin to think that way, it changes everything because you begin to understand that everything for a follower of Jesus is a call from God. And there are two places primarily that we find this in the scriptures. And, and in those two places, I want you to see two mandates relative to a, a Christian's place in society at large. So, okay, kingdom of God, 
you got to think kingdom always. D, disciple. I want to follow Jesus in that kingdom. Today is S. The way I'm going to do that is on the grid of society where God has placed me. And mandate number one for me to get that done is to recognize the sovereignty of Jesus in all of society. Now that takes us to Colossians chapter one. And I want us to see just briefly here Paul's use of an ancient hymn the church used to to sing together. He says in verse 15, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Man, this is a powerful statement. And it identifies Jesus in two ways. First off, by calling him the image of the invisible God. That word means an exact representation in kind. In fact, the Greek word is icon. Anybody older like me and remember the days where all there was were desktop computers? Like the days before laptops? All right, that was when we first, or at least when I first as an adult, became familiar with the term icon. I would see this picture on the screen of a piece of paper and a little blue W. And that meant, yeah, it, it, well, it meant all kinds of horrible things. But yeah, basically it meant Microsoft. Actually, mine was orange and that wasn't Word. That was, anybody remember? Microsoft Works. Greatest oxymoron in creation right there. Right? But it, but it did. It, 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 all right? so you, but what it did, it was the icon. And what that icon was, was a corresponding picture of a program that I could go to and all I had to do was click on the icon. But I never once powered up a computer and said, oh, look, that's the exact representation of the nature of Microsoft Word. I never said that. I said, oh, look, there's Microsoft Word. That's that's the meaning behind this. When it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he is the exact representation, invisible form of a God that we otherwise cannot see. What does that mean? Well, it means the same thing Jesus meant when he told his disciples once, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what it means. The image of the invisible God. Secondly, he's the firstborn of all creation. And we got to be careful here because elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told Jesus did not have a beginning. So firstborn cannot mean that he did not exist, and then at some point later he did. Firstborn is used here. Paul uses it as a cultural reference that it would have been easily recognized by his Jewish audience, a, a cultural reference to the eldest son. Jesus is metaphorically referred to in Scripture as our elder brother. And in the ancient world, it was the oldest son that received the first and the most of the inheritance that was coming to him. And so the firstborn of all creation means all creation is the descriptor for the inheritance that he gets. Paul is saying in Jesus, you and I have a way to see the Father, and in Jesus we have an elder brother who will inherit everything we see and everything that we don't see. Just as Jesus said to John, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. And so now you have to ask a question, well, what's he inheriting? What's he inheriting? Now this is where it gets good. All right? Thrones. Every throne in the world. What's a throne? Well, it's a seat of authority. Okay? And there's several ways you can think of that. 
You can think of that as a seat of formal authority. So in our day, probably the, the closest thing would be one of our officers that are, that are in the building right now that wears a badge. Maybe they've even got it on them under their clothes right now. And that badge gives them authority, authority to enforce laws, authority to, if necessary, to make an arrest or even to, to use deadly force. But you also might think of it in a, in a knowledge base area. Someone not with a badge, but maybe with a license to practice his or her trade. Somebody that's credentialed in some way. In each situation, they've been handed a throne, a seat of authority. And then there's dominions. Well, dominions describe scope of authority. So let's go back to the badge a moment. If there's a badge in here that says County of Jefferson, then what that means is that particular officer, he or she, has jurisdictional authority within the county. But if they cross the river into Maryland or they cross the county line into Berkeley, they don't have the same authority over there that they have here. So Jesus is going to inherit every throne, every knowledge base, every expression of formal authority, and every dominion that defines where that authority can go, everything. All right, so think about that. Whether you're an officer of the law, or maybe you are a mental health professional, or you know how to educate the next generation, or you know how to design things. When you, when you work in all of these areas, those are dominions Jesus is permitting you to work in as his follower, and those dominions now and forever belong to him. And so do you. That's indicated by the word rulers. Ruler is an embodiment of authority. Every domain of society has Rulers, police officers, judges, people who are experts, who can help society at large, and even who can help the church and then help the church help its community. And all of this, Paul tells us, belongs to Jesus. And in Jesus, at this moment, they are all held together. Every society, different fields and functions come together to cooperate to make humanity better. And Paul tells us here that all of this endures only through Jesus who gave those domains to us because he loves humanity and he wants to see humanity flourish. So here's the big idea. Jesus has placed you where you are with the knowledge you have, with the skills you have, among the people that you know. And he has, in giving you those gifts, called you to leverage it for the kingdom of God. Meaning whatever you do as a nurse or a mechanic or an engineer or a teacher, if you do it as a follower of Jesus, it has every bit as much redemptive import as what I'm doing at the this moment. That's the call that God's put on your life. So we got to resist this idea that society is this separate thing that's secondary to the real ministry. You start to see your vocation the way God sees it. You can envision your profession the way God does. You will be positioned to reach people in areas of civilization that no preacher could dare to go if you will simply recognize the very sovereignty of Jesus that Paul just described for us and simply walk around with this knowledge. This is God's world. This is my Father's world. Everything I do, I do for him. Everything I do should give pictures of the, the redemptive import of the gospel into the world. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, that's the second mandate. And that takes us to the passage that Michelle read for us at, at the outset of our time together. Jeremiah 29 tells us you do it by loving the people where you are. Love the people where you are. See, some of you right now, you, you, you've been off for a few days and tomorrow morning's coming, and you don't want to go back because you don't like your job. Some of you don't want to go back because you got heartburn. Okay, granted, you'll get over that. 
Maybe not so much mac and cheese the next time, right? But others of you, like, it, it, like the last four days were just like, well, maybe I can push the reset button. But then you realize, no, this is not the reset button. This is not the kind of tired that sleep can fix. This is not the like, like man, there's like, I, I don't like what's going on. Some of you are about my age or maybe a little younger, but you've been an adult for at least a couple of decades, maybe three and, and you're, you're looking at culture and where it is versus where it was maybe when you were younger, and you're like, I don't like this. Like, I don't like what's happening. I, I, I feel out of place. I, I don't understand. I don't even know if I fit in. Some of you that are just now emerging into adulthood, you're in your teens, you're, you're in your 20s, and you're like, man, I kind of knew the, the world was jacked up, but I didn't have any idea it was this jacked up. And man, the last five years through high school and college, and I don't even like, I was just focused on trying to get a job, and I've grown up in a time where at least in the United States I've had relative peace, and now it looks like the whole world is like one bad bottle of tequila away from world war. Like, I don't like what's happening in the world. We got a lot of legitimate reasons to look around and not like what we see and not like what we are or where we are. But we're not the first. See, what had happened, and by the time we get to Jeremiah 29, is, is God's people were gathered by the Euphrates River in that, in that city, that country that, that had invaded their country, had, had toppled their, their temple, and had exiled them off and made them slaves in a foreign land. In other words, that, no matter what you're dealing with right now, they had it worse than you did. All right? And, and, and we're going to see what they were tempted with. Right? They're, they're listening, even at this point, to some false teachers who told them what they wanted to hear. There's one guy in particular, his name is Hananiah. And he says in chapter 28, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. I'm, most people probably are looking around at this point going, it sure doesn't feel like it. I have broken the yoke. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. All right? Here's what he's saying. This is all going to be over soon. You don't need to worry about this place you're in. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to restore everything. And let me tell you what that message encouraged. It encouraged a posture of denial. It really isn't that bad. Jeremiah would come along and say, by the way, this is one of the issues with some preachers. They always want to make you feel good and everything. A good pastor will actually tell you the truth. And sometimes the truth is it really is that bad. But they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear it. So they want denial. Second thing they want is isolation. We're not going to be here long anyway. So we'll just keep to ourselves and we'll do our thing. And then we don't we worry about making a mark or making a difference. If this doesn't sound familiar then, well, good, good. But I'm, I'm imagining it does. Uh, and, and let me pinpoint it for you. We're not about this world. We're about the next world. We're going to get raptured up out of here anyway, so don't worry about it. Not the call of God for you and me. Escapism, escapism is not the call of followers of Jesus. It certainly is not... The, what we inherited from our first century forebears. Let's just hunker down and circle the wagons until we get yanked out of here. Jeremiah is going to confront that message head on. 
He will confront it in a way that coincides with the wider witness of Scripture regarding how God's people should relate to the wider world. And the overriding principle we see here is that God's people, no matter where or among whom we find ourselves, should never keep the kingdom we serve to ourselves. We bring it just as Jesus would teach his disciples to pray on earth just as it is in heaven. And I want you to see three ways this happens. First, by living in the times where God has placed you. Jeremiah 29, 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles that I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, I have sent. That would have been a double shock to the system of people living in Babylon. Because in the first place, when they were living in Jerusalem, they never thought this could happen. Right? God, God would never let that happen to us. We're his chosen people. God would never let that happen to us because if he let it happen to us, he would let it happen to his temple and he would never let anything happen to his temple and now we read from the words of an inspired prophet that's exactly what i allowed to happen in fact i ordered it to happen it was ultimately my doing i have put you where you are that had to be difficult to hear you think god didn't just allow this he ordained it my current surroundings they may be less than ideal there may be things about your life that you can't stand. I, I run into this as a pastor sometimes with people who just can't seem to find a good church. And I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm just being, I'm going to be honest and, and vulnerable with you for a minute. I, I, I've been here eight years. I've been in ministry about 30 years. And I can see these people coming a mile away, right, from the first dinner you have with them. And you're sitting across. I remember one in particular sitting over in, in Subway here in Shepherdstown sitting across the table, listening to a guy, well, we went here for a while, and I didn't like this, and I didn't like that, and then we went over here for a while, and I didn't like this, and I didn't like that, and you know what I'm thinking? How long is it going to be before he... There are some people that it doesn't matter what you do, they're never going to be happy. And they're going to get there, they're going to get... You, you, ever met, you ever met somebody that treats their romantic life that way? I know people, I can't even talk about my relationship to them or I would out them and that would be ugly. But I know people who, oh, he's my Prince Charming. I just love him so much. And I can watch the progression because they put it all over social media. I just love them so much. They're so much better than that jerk I found in the gutter six months ago. And then a few months later, <laughs> I can't believe he would treat me that way. I can't believe he would say that. I can't believe I'm going to drop him like a cloth. And then two weeks later, I found another Prince Charming. And you see this happen over and over and over. And you're like, who's going to tell her? Where's it? Yeah, some people do that with their church. It's like you're just never going to make. Bonhoeffer, by the way, warned us about this. He said, he who loves his idea of community more than the actual community destroys actual community. You got this ideal, and it's, it's, we're 90, if we're 98%, by the way, we're probably not even at 98%. Because we're just not. We're, we're just not. I mean, I don't know. I blame Ken. I think that's, it's, it's Ken's fault. I, I, no, it's, it's probably me. It's, it's probably a number of us, right? I mean, we're probably, but if we were at 98%, those people would look for the 2% and they would nudge and nudge and nudge and nudge, right? And, and what I've discovered, why am I telling you all this? Am I complaining? No. 
I'm telling you that what I've discovered is when people do something like that to a church, they're doing it in some other area of their life as well. They're just not happy. And they think it's out there. They think the problem is something external has got to get fixed. There's somebody that needs to do something for me. And some of you, you treat your job like that, which is why you're miserable at work all the time. And some of you, God forbid, you've got that seven-year itch, that 15-year itch going on in your marriage right now, and you're tempted to treat your family that way. You've been listening to a little bit too much Andrew Tate. Actually, you've been, if you listen to any Andrew Tate, you listen to too much Andrew Tate. That's another sermon for another day. The temptation in that is a long, I need another scenario. Here's what's going to happen. You spend all your time longing for what is not and what could be, and you miss what is. You miss what God is doing right here and right now. The same God who spoke through Jeremiah speaks today, and he says to you, evil may have contributed to your current state. You know what? Even some of your own foolish decisions in the past might not have helped you given where you are right now. But ultimately, I'm the one who brought you here. And that's important to remember, especially for some of us. You just, you, you just got out from around the family dinner table, and some of you had more pleasant results from that than others. I know how that goes. I hear about family drama all the time. It's hard to love those people unless you first realize that's where God put you. This was never about them to begin with, and it was not about you. It's about a God who owns everything, who has put you right here, right now for that exact reason. And when we think as a church about where we are and where we are not, these are the times where God has placed us. Let's live in them. Secondly, let's live with the neighbors that God has given us. Live with the neighbors God has given you. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. These don't sound like short-term goals, do they? And give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Okay, again, remember, this is... Polar opposite from what they heard from Hananiah. Verse 3, within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house. I'm going to restore Jerusalem. I'm going to re restore the temple. Every single vessel that they took, I'm going to bring it back. It's going to get sanctified. One's, one prophet's itching their ear, he's scratching itching ears, and the other one's telling the truth. And the truth is this, build houses, plant gardens. In an agricultural environment, this is what that means. Get a job get a mortgage. If you're single and you want to get married, find a spouse right here because you're going to be here a really long time. How long? Verse 10 says 70 years. That's a pretty long time for most, even by today's standards, right? Even by today's standards, the average lifespan of an American citizen today is 79.8 years. That's the average lifespan. And, that, and we're, we're, by the way, 42nd out of 195 nations. We're the wealthiest, most powerful nation ever in the history of humanity, and we're 42nd in life expectancy. I suspect it has to do with the things we do with bacon, but that's, I don't know, we'll see. 42nd. Number one is the kingdom of Monaco. The average citizen of Monaco lives 89.52 years. My oldest son, who is 23 and is home with us this weekend, his generation is expected to live an average, given healthcare advances and other things, of 102 years. All right? But even with that, if you move to Babylon as an adult, you're likely not living to come back. Now, let's contrast that with 
first century, not 6th century B.C., 600 years of advance after the first century, the average lifespan was between 38 and 50 years. And so when he says in verse 10, 70 years, he's saying to the people living in Babylon, this is your life. It might not be the one you wanted, but it ain't about you anyway. This is your life. This is your reality. For the overwhelming majority of you, you will never see Jerusalem again. So own, don't rent. Take wives. Don't wait to return. Give your sons and daughters in marriage and have grandchildren. Now the plan there is pretty simple. Live among people who don't believe as you do. This sounds relevant, doesn't it? Work hard. Play hard, rest well, live a quiet and godly life, raise your children to do the same, marry them off to other kids who have been raised in the same way so that your grandchildren will carry on the faith. And the mere presence of that dynamic among your neighbors makes you different and it will make them want to be different. You don't need a fresh new strategy and you don't need a new neighborhood. You need to live in the times with the people, the neighbors that he has given you. And then you got to do it with this. If you don't have this final thing, none of the rest of it matters. Love with the gospel that God has instilled in you. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. I brought you here. This is your life. Own, don't rent. You're in it for the long haul. Seek the welfare of the people around you and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Every time I read that passage and I compare it to the way so many evangelical churches react to culture, I just get more and more convinced that we need a posture check when it comes to, to our interaction with wider culture. <clears throat> no, we're not always going to agree. We are sometimes going to have to deal with things antithetical to our faith. Sometimes we're going to have to deal with people that are going to hate our very guts simply by what we believe. But too often we react as though that's the only thing we're supposed to see when we look at society. And we forget the culture is not inherently sinful. Worldliness is sinful. Culture is not worldliness. They are not synonymous terms. Culture is just like somebody's house. It's just where they live. There's good things in it, there's bad things in it, but it's their home. It's their home. And so yelling at culture all the time in this adversarial manner is like standing out somebody, outside somebody's house, screaming at them, maybe telling them their mama's ugly. I don't know what you're saying to them, but they're not listening. They're not listening. And we react as though that's all like, there's a world out there that's bigger than me and bigger than my family that we're to engage. Let me give you a great just real world example of that. The Rainies are a homeschool family. All right. There are all kinds of reasons for that, but, but we, all three of our children, including our oldest, who's now graduated, moving, working on a master's, right? Middle kid's a senior, youngest is a freshman. That, that's what we do. And I, that's what we believe we should do for our family. For a lot of people in my position, what that means is that they, they need to have an ambivalent or maybe even adversarial position toward the public school system. And that's just a lie. It's just a lie. Do you realize most of the children in this county are educated by that system? You really want to pray for its demise? We're talking about our kids here. You're like, it's pagan. I'm not so sure about that. That that sort of blanket, I, I get their issues sometimes in school, so I get all of that. I understand. I, just, just sort of blanket, everything's wicked, everything, everything I don't agree with is pagan and wicked. 
No, I, I don't think that's true. But you know what? Even if it was, Moses was the product of an Egyptian education. Moses went to a system that I, I don't know what its philosophy of pedagogy was, but I'm betting it did not have monotheism at its philosophical base. I'm just going to put that out there. Given what I know about Egyptian religion and Egyptian culture, Moses. All right. I, so what do we want? We, we want? we want people who work that system to be compensated fairly. We want facilities well-maintained. We want resources adequately supplied. Why? Because our concern is the welfare of the county. And if you live in Berkeley, Washington, Loudoun, same thing. How often do we see about those who serve us? We have a fire department that's almost completely volunteer. We have a local police department here. Did you know we had a group for the, that for the, an entire year, several years ago, did nothing but pray for Senator Manchin and Senator Capito? That's all they did. And it was amazing. I have a friend who worked for President Bush, later worked for the State Department. He said, politicians get two kinds of calls, begging and chewing. That's what we get. They're either begging us for money or some kind of thing, or they're chewing us out because we made a decision they didn't like. And they're calling to cuss us out and let us know what they think. And listen, I, <laughs> there's a place for both of them. I'm not saying there's not. Okay? But just to, just to say, look, we're not begging and we're not chewing. We're lifting you up. We're lifting your family up. One letter a month. Like we, We're supposed to be more than just a fly in the ointment, guys. Live in the times where God has placed you. Live among the neighbors that God has given you and love with the gospel that God has instilled in you. And here's the promise tied to this expectation. It's in verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Now that's the one that's on a coffee cup that everybody loves to look at and think fits within their plan. But the context of all of Jeremiah 29 tells us that's not the way that verse is to be read. I have good plans for it. That's right, I'm going to get that new car. That's right, I'm going to get that new job. That's right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find my way out of this. I'm gonna, that's you claiming your crap. And that's not Christianity. That's right. I, so much of the deconstruction is over people that prayed for stuff, and three days later they didn't get what they wanted because they thought this was all about them and not all about Jesus, so then they decided to become an agnostic. It's just not. Here's the issue. Do we trust God to provide this? Do we trust God when he says, I have good plans for you. I have a future and a hope for you. It's mine, not yours. Do we trust him enough to do all of those other things that we just read about? Because it is our reality regardless. God had them brought, exiled into Babylon. He put them there and he said, I am going to, remember Abraham? All of the nations are going to be blessed. Apparently, the Hebrews, they completely forgot about that. And so God now in this one moment in history is teaching them that lesson the hard way. I'm going to put you in the middle of a foreign land surrounded by people you don't know and you don't trust. And I'm going to inextricably tie your fortunes to theirs so that you will love them the way I mean for you to love them. That's what it looks like for, for us to take everything God has given us 
Whatever throne is in your life, whatever dominion God has given you, whatever area of expertise, and to leverage it for that kingdom, trusting that God will provide. That, that takes an awful lot of humility, doesn't it? And we live in a world system that is not humble. Forget about the poor and the vulnerable. Look out for number one. Us versus them. Dog eat dog. Get whatever you can. I mean, we're not that far from Washington, D.C. I get how tempting being just in this close geographic proximity those temptations are. It's, but it's the values of pro athletes. It's the values of the corporate world. I have never seen the Wall Street Journal report on an executive getting a promotion or, or getting named to the chair of some board because he or she was someone lowly and humble of heart. I've never seen that. I'm sure there are people who are characterized by that, but that's not what the world looks for. God says, my plans for you, they involve a hopeful future. They follow one path. And your welfare is tied to this, to do justice for those people, to love mercy among those people, to walk humbly with your God. So here's what I'm praying for. Here's what I'm praying for. By God's grace. And it may not be tomorrow. Maybe it'll take, take a while for some of you to get this. But my prayer is tomorrow, tomorrow, when you go back to work, that you look at your occupation differently, that you look at your place and position in the world differently. God has placed you there. How will you leave it better than you found it? And, and if you've never known Jesus, this is, this is part of what he calls you to. You know, when he called the disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They were fishermen. They knew what it meant to fish. So he, he finds an analogy connected to their occupation. He says, I got something better for you. And yeah, God does sometimes call you out of one occupation and into ministry. Maybe he's doing that with some of you right now. That'd be wonderful. For most of the church, Jesus is just saying, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me, and I'll lead you to something greater. And if that's something you've never done, man, our elders and deacons would love to have a conversation with you today, beginning in, under one of these four crosses when we sing in just a moment, just about what it means to follow Jesus, to give your life over to him, to repent of your sins, to put your faith and your trust in, in his salvation that he earned by dying for your sins and being risen from the dead. But this is what it means to follow him. Everything you have all the knowledge in your head, all of your expertise, everything is his, including the world that you're going to go out into tomorrow. This is your father's world. Trust him in that. Trust him in that and obey him and follow him in it. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the picture and, and for the reminder, Lord. And, and I know certainly I need it. I, I don't know anybody else in this building where they're at right now mentally, but as I look at the things going on in the world, I need the reminder that this world belongs to you. And so I thank you that your servants thousands of years ago wrote these words in context even much more difficult than what we face right now to remind us of that very fact. And so Lord, for those who don't follow you this morning, I pray that they would become a son of the king of the universe, a daughter of the king of the universe by turning from their sins and putting their faith and trust in Jesus. I pray for those who have been following you, but they're discouraged today. They're despondent. They don't quite know. Maybe even after a Thanksgiving weekend, they're more lost now than they were on Wednesday afternoon when they left work. God, 
give them a fresh vision, not even of themselves and their life and their best life or whatever that means, Lord. Give them a vision of your kingdom and your power and your glory. And may we honor you. Uh, Lord, as our church faces a new year, as 2024 is upon us, Lord, give us a vision of the things you've taught us today, the larger than our church, and help us to aim forward and by your spirit to meet those goals and to be faithful to you until the very end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.